Good evening. I'm Susan Sontag, and to my left, uh, of course, is uh, Chinua Achebe, uh, the format this evening will be uh, quite informal. I'll, I'll make a, a few brief opening remarks. Mr. Achebe will speak. Uh, uh, he's come with two friends, uh, uh, two other writers I think he wants to introduce to you. We'll start to talk, and uh, I think I should have a clock. <laughs> And then at a, a, a not indecent moment, we'll shut up and um, open the discussion uh, to questions. And I assume Mr. Achebe will do most, most of the responding. I certainly I think that the questions uh, should obviously be mostly uh, addressed to him. I know he, he needs no introduction, of course, but uh, I will just uh, remind you uh, that he is indeed one of the uh, world's most distinguished writers. Uh, they, he's published uh, many books, and uh, some of them are in paperback. And I have two, two of the books here that I, I, I hope and, and assume that uh, many of you, most of you, have read some of it, run some of his books. Uh, I suppose the the books that most people think of. Uh, when, when they think of Mr. Achebe are his first his book which uh, revealed him uh, as an important literary figure that, w w that was published in um, 1958 a novel called Things Fall Apart which is uh, set in an Igbo village in Nigeria Mr. Achebe was born in Nigeria in 1930 and uh, an enormous trajectory of work uh, climaxing most recently uh, in a very ambitious novel uh, set in, uh, uh, in the capital, very much an urban novel, called Ant Hills of the Savannah, which was published to, to great acclaim in, uh, two years ago in 1987. There are two uh, things that I want to, to mention uh, to you about Mr. Achebe that, that I think are appropriate to mention here. One is that he has a, uh, although he continues to live in Nigeria, he's spent a great deal of time in this country and has had uh, for over a decade a, a part-time uh, teaching position at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, Massachusetts. So he's been spending a great deal of time uh, in the United States teaching. Is it uh, every other semester or every fourth semester? Whenever I can. Whenever you can. Okay. <laughs> That's that. well. It, uh, people in the University of Massachusetts have been lucky to uh, to have him in residence uh, quite a few semesters in the last decade. He's currently. Uh, teaching at the City University here in New York, and when we were talking, chatting just before we came up here, uh, he was uh, talking about his impressions of New York, which, uh, he, although he knows the United States quite well and has spent all this time in Massachusetts, he ha hasn't spent much time in New York, 
he said, uh, well, you know, I'm a village person. And I said, well, New York is or was a bunch of villages, so you should uh, feel at home here. We're, we're not quite as frightening as we're made out to be uh, uh, in the rest of the United States and elsewhere in the world. One can walk down the streets of this city uh, as anywhere else. Uh, the other thing that I've, I'd like to mention is that and why another reason why um, I and and Karen Kennerly, the executive director and the, and the Penn staff and many other people here are, are particularly happy about welcoming Mr. Achebe and having a chance to meet him and listen to him is that he is a uh, candidate for uh, the international president presidency of Penn. You know, you know that Penn, of course, is a, a, an international organization with close to a, a hundred uh, centers in different countries. Most recently, as you may know from reading the newspaper, we now even have a, a center in the Soviet Union. All, all things are possible if you wait long enough and keep your fingers crossed. Uh, and there are uh, uh, then centers in the various countries with their own traditions. Uh, some centers are a lot more active than others. The American Center is one of the most active of, of the, uh, all, the, all the centers in the world. Um, and then there is an international president, and the uh, president, uh, international president, who has been for the last three years a, a, an English writer, Francis King. He served for three years. He could have served for another three years. You can serve as long as six years. Be, be warned. Uh, but uh, he chose uh, to serve only only three years, and so we have a new election coming up in the next Penn Congress, International Congress. We have an extraordinary number of Congresses, International Congresses. We had one, a very tumultuous one in Seoul just before the Olympics last September, and there's one now in May uh, in a small city in Holland where the next international president will be elected. Uh, there are uh, two principal candidates. I won't even tell you who the other one is, but our candidate, <laughs> along with um, a number of other centers, is uh, Chino Achebe. So we're we're going to go to to Holland and fight fight for him. I'm very confident that he will be the next international president of Penn. Although, unfortunately, there's somebody else who also wants to be president or is willing to be president. It's a, it's a difficult and complex role, and we're very grateful that Mr. Achebe has consented to allow himself uh, to be nominated uh, by, in fact, the, Eng the English-speaking Canadian center is, uh, is the center that nominated him, very much uh, seconded and supported by us and many other centers. So um, we, we are also in the presence. This is hardly the most important of his distinctions. It may be the least important of his distinctions, but it's one that gives us pleasure we may be also in the, president, in the presence of the next international president of Penn. Uh, now to the serious business, which is not about Penn, but about literature. Um, I wanted to start by inviting Mr. Achebe perhaps to comment on, some, on, a, on a question about his own work, which uh, is also something I think a lot about, which is the relationship between uh, fi his fiction and his essay writing or the relationship between ideas and fiction. So certainly he would be um, uh, 
uh, characterized, I think it would be not unfair to say, as a as a as a uh, um, a writer who, who who works with ideas and with a, a, a certain ideas about society. I realize, by the way, I've skipped over something and not given you a chance to do what we agreed you were going to do, which is introduce your friends, uh, and also. Uh, the, there's the question of fiction and nonfiction, and the question of uh, whether there's such a thing as African literature. I'm very suspicious of these continental labels. Uh, I don't know whether Nigerians want to be called Africans. I mean, they are Africans in a, in a literal sense, uh, but it may not be. Uh, uh, it is certainly not useful for all peoples to define themselves by continental labels. I think. Uh, uh, a Polish writer and a Spanish writer would not find it tremendously useful to think of themselves as European writers first and foremost. A, uh, a Japanese writer and an Indian writer would probably not first of all define themselves as Asian, but rather simply as Japanese or Indian. And yet, I realize I'm, I'm fielding two quite different questions, and you can answer both or neither of them. Uh, and yet we, we ignorant people uh, here, I think I speak not only for myself, but my ignorance is uh, unlimited in, in, in these matters, but oh, I'm afraid also for some other people here as well. well. We are given the impression that people from various countries in Africa do find valid the term African literature in a way perhaps that Asian literature or European literature doesn't function for people coming from uh, countries in in uh, those regions. It, this may simply be for the reason that African countries are new entities, unlike the countries of Asia and Europe, or it may be for other reasons. Anyway, I want to turn it over to you, as you can introduce your friends and comment on whatever part of that you like. Thank you very much, Susan. Um, I'm very happy, very honored to be here, and uh, I want to thank American uh, Center of Pen for asking me to this event. Um, I can only see one of the two friends I had promised to. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> it, it just happens that today, um, two of the key writers from Africa uh, are visiting me, and uh, so I decided they decided to accompany me to this event. I suppose uh, in, in the event that it might get too hot, um, uh, so they would give, lend their support. Um, one is uh, J.P. Clark, who is sitting right here. He is one of the leading poets and playwrights in Nigeria. Maybe you could uh, just stand up. And then in the audience there somewhere is Nuruddin Farah, who is a very distinguished novelist. Um, yes. From Somalia. Okay. He is supposed to be from Somalia, but he says he's a nomad. So, so he's, um, he's everywhere. And uh, he's in this country at this time. Right. Um, the question of definition, um, 
who is an African writer, or is it useful, is it necessary to have that categorization? I would say yes and no. Yes, uh, in the sense that there are people who are called Africans. And therefore, what these people who are called Africans write can legitimately be called African literature. Um, now, if you want to push that further and to look for characteristics and for nuances, for, for special qualities of, of mind or craft, then I think you will be doing something more difficult and perhaps more dangerous, uh, which is not to say you shouldn't do it. Uh, I think what it means is that you know that there are certain pitfalls. Uh, because we've had in the past meetings of writers from Africa uh, which uh, were completely obsessed with definitions. And we never really got anywhere. I mean, somebody will get up and say, who is an African? Um, I would say somebody who, who has a passport that says he comes from some African country. It's as simple as that. Uh, they would say, for instance, I know there was a case when it, it's no longer funny when somebody like Medin Godima was invited to a conference of um, African writers in Texas. And uh, on the eve of this meeting, she got a, a phone call saying, you are disinvited. And she was very upset. The reason was somebody said she cannot be an African writer. Um, now, I myself consider Nadine Godima as an African writer. And in fact, I make sure if I have any occasion to say so, I do. So the question of who is an African is more difficult than I have said initially. Um, I think we should leave it there, really. Because but can I ask you then why? the national labels are not important. I mean, I was already suggesting a possible answer because the countries in Africa are, in terms of their geographical boundaries, largely, not entirely, the creation of the colonial powers. But you know that in Europe, let's say, uh, it would be much more significant for somebody to say, I'm a Polish writer, than to say, I'm a European writer. Or, or to say I am yeah. a Japanese writer rather than to say I am an Asian writer. Why for you is, yeah. I appreciate your saying that African writers do not have to be black, to, uh, uh, and I think that's a very important qualification and clarification because I'm sure there are some people who do make that assumption that let's say Nadine Gordimer is not an African writer. She's, I don't know what, part of colonial English literature or something rather than an African writer. So that I think that's very important that you made that statement. But why is it not, relatively speaking, or, or is it important for you to speak of Nigerian literature or yourself as a Nigerian writer? Why do the national um, labels seem to count relatively little in Africa, unlike in Asia, Europe. Yeah, well, actually, I am both. You know, I am, when you say relatively, maybe, um, yes, you're, you're right. 
Um, we are both, I am both a Nigerian writer and an African writer. And I don't see any problem. Um, you know, we are actually, all of us that way, you know, we belong to all kinds of fraternities. Uh, I'm not only an African writer and a Nigerian writer. If you get into Nigeria, you'll find that I'm a, a writer from uh, Anambra State, uh, a writer from Ogidi, which is my village. And I wear all these identities, and they are not in conflict. Now, the question, the comparison between us and Europe, I think is, is historical. Um, history has not used us the same way as it has used Europe. Uh, and therefore, um, the, the nationalities, nationality like po, when you say Pole, is not the same thing as when you say a Nigerian, for historical reasons. Um, part of it is, is what you suggested, the newness of this. But I think it is a function of the recent history, very, very serious function of the recent history of Africa that we are um, that way. And um, we often get into trouble if we attempt to repeat in Africa the same categorizations that you have in Europe because the history has simply been different. Um, I guess that's about it, really. Um, well, I think with all of these labels, it's what you can do with them. It's how they function that that, that, that accounts for why they're used. Mm -hmm. It seems as if it is it, at, at the present moment, it is more useful um, for, an, uh, to, for a number of ideological purposes to stress Africanness rather than to stress national identity. I mean, of course, it's true that uh, we all wear many hats, that we all, all can be described in many ways. But some take precedence uh, over uh, uh, another. I mean, I can say I'm an American writer, or I could say I'm a woman writer. In principle, these are simply two different ways of labeling myself. In principle, they're, they're not only not incompatible, they are, uh, they're simply labels, uh, along with where I, where I was born or what generation I'm, uh, etc. But we know that depending on what I decide or choose to stress, I am making a statement about literature, about how I think literature should be viewed, about certain ethical or political purposes. Uh, if, I, if I downplay one of the labels in favor of another, it is a decision. I don't say that they're incompatible, but they reflect decisions. They reflect decisions about ideas of community, past, present, and future. And I think probably one should stress the future even more than the past here, uh, how literature is to be constituted. I, I only rem remark that, uh, and forgive the distance from which this remark is made, that Africa is the only continent I know where the continental label has such force. I mean, we have, ha we have heard a lot, for instance, in the past uh, decade or two about South American literature or Latin American literature. But that has been really a, a journalistic label to um, promote a new generation of writers. In fact, I think for a, a writer from Peru or Colombia or Argentina or, or Mexico, they are still more aware of their national literary traditions than some larger identity of South or Latin America. But excuse me for insisting on this, the African uh, identity has a power. 
continues to have a power, which I think some of us would like to understand. Uh, we feel cautious because we don't precisely want to advance with our labels. We understand all too, uh, all too well, some of us, how such labels have themselves been a form of cultural imperialism uh, to group things in, in this external or remote way. We want to, as much as possible as sensitive readers, to understand things more from the inside. Uh, so I think that's why some of us, my, myself included, wonder how, how much uh, it, it means for us, perhaps, to use a label like African literature even though it may make a, a sense that we cannot entirely grasp for African writers, writers from African countries, to use it. Yes, well, let me, let me uh, emphasize again, we are both. Uh, perhaps um, the history that I have talked about, the, the recent history of Africa, um, is the fundamental reason behind this. There is a certain feeling uh, which, which we have, uh, the feeling of Africa. Uh, and I think this feeling comes uh, from the fact of the kind of history we have had in, say, the last 300, 400, 500 years. I think that uh, is a major component of the reason for this. Um, uh, the colonialism, the colonial period, divisions into, into countries that are really reflections of Europe rather than of Africa. So I think when you put all these things together, the, 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 the dominant, the thing which is constant, which is, which is eternal, if you like, is Africa, and Africanness. Because that's one unit. It's a compact unit. It's also, um, if what they tell us is right, perhaps the oldest place in the world where the first people were. Um, perhaps this has something to do with it. But we do have that sense. We do have the sense of Africa. There's no question at all. And when I say I'm a Nigerian and an African, I do not see any conflict, but the, both of them are real. But if you are saying which is more real, that's difficult. It's really difficult. Um, I would insist that they are both real. And I'm not really able to weigh them, uh, to give them, to score them, uh, and say this is this is heavier. I would not be able to deal to live without either of them. I would not be able. Uh, if anybody said to me, "No, but you're just a Nigerian writer," I would I would object. If somebody said to me, "But you're not a Nigerian writer," you're you're. African, but I would, I would insist. And that's part of the duality, perhaps, uh, of, of our experience, which is founded in our, in our traditions. Things don't come singly. This is why I was insisting on the, on the, on the nature of, of our identities and our affiliations. We can't be one thing. Uh, we have to be more than one. And this goes to the root of of our quarrel, really, with those who came to civilize us. Um, I'm thinking of the missionaries 
And I have nothing against missionaries. Some of my best friends were missionaries. My parents, in fact, were missionaries. So you understand that I have no ill will. Now, they came with a totally different view of, of things and the way, the truth, and the life. My own people had said until that moment, wherever one thing stands, another thing will stand beside it. Um, and then suddenly they, were, they encountered people who said, it's only one. One way, one truth, one life. Uh, it's not like saying we are coming with a different way and a different life because our people would have understood that. No, they said, we've come with the way. And that kind of fanaticism did not exist in my culture before. And uh, that's perhaps why we are not so particular, even now, even at this stage, to say, this is what I want to be. I'm a Nigerian or I'm a Kenyan. No, I want to be a whole lot of things. And even beyond Africa and Nigeria, I want to be other things as well. And uh, I think this is a richer way of looking at our existence and our lives. Than but are you suggesting then that the monotheistic traditions, because one would have to include Islam as well as Christianity, are in some sense alien to African culture? Because both of these, perhaps more notably uh, or more visibly recently, Islam have... Uh, um, gained n many, many followers uh, among Africans. Yes, and, I would. And I mean, when you talk about missionary culture, I, I, I have a feeling you're talking about monotheistic missionary culture. Yes, and of yes. course, we from this part of the, of the world tend to think of Christian missionaries, but um, uh, Islam is also an, an evangelical religion, and yes. they're now very a large. Uh, um, Muslim populations oh, yes, in, yes. in Africa. Yes, I, there are many Christians too. But fundamentally, the, the so-called higher religions, the ones uh, you've mentioned, uh, are the fanatical religions. That's what, what I'm saying. They are the ones that say, I am the way, the truth, and the life, the, no matter the, the, how they put it. Um, and um, in time, they do win converts in time, because they have come also with with power. Uh, they've come with uh, other things that you can't ignore. And, uh, and so this is really part of this story I'm, I'm, I'm talking about, this African story. It's a very complex story. Um, uh, there is a very important Senegalese novel, which I always teach. Uh, Senegalese Muslim novel called Ambiguous Adventure. And the argument there, the inhabitants of this place, colonized, first of all defeated and colonized by the French, their basic argument is how is it that we can be defeated, that people who are in the wrong can win the battle? How come that these people who've come from far away and are obviously in the wrong, 
can win the war against us. In other words, um, uh, this is this is um, you might say a very naive, a very a very innocent way of looking at the world. Because these are some of the um, baggages we carry as Africans, and the two religions you mentioned are similar. In fact, in having this idea of righteousness, because it's, it's part of it, the idea of righteousness. I'm right, you are wrong. <laughs> and so whether we, in fact, we have Christians among us or Muslims among us, the fundamental, the initial meeting must have been full of, of wonder and, 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 pain. and, and pain and surprise. Yes. Let me, let me ask you to, to explore another aspect of this question of, uh, of identity. You made the point that you don't uh, define African as black African. Therefore, to take the, uh, the, the famous case of Nadine Gordimer, she is to be uh, counted as, as an African writer, though she's not black. Therefore, the notion of African or African literature as you use it, and, and, and it makes complete sense to me, uh, is is not the same as the old notion that, that you found particularly in, in uh, uh, Francophone countries of negritude, that what united uh, the literature from that content, co uh, continent was uh, some relation to the phenomenon of blackness, and therefore African writers, the old notion of negritude would, in fact, identify African literature with uh, literature produced by black Africans. So we're not talking about negritude. But let me remind you of another debate which has gone on uh, in, in, in your part of the world, as well as in many other parts of the world, the question of using an international language, that is to say, the language of a colonizing people, notably English or French, as the language of literature, versus using uh, indigenous or tribal languages. Uh, surely there have been, uh, uh, one would know without knowing, because it's so obvious, a, a, an intellectual move, uh, th those in Africa who have said that people who write in English or French uh, are in some way alienated from uh, what is distinctively African, because they are using uh, 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 language of uh, colonizing people. I, this is a very old argument, and it's, it's used all over the world. I've, I found recently, a, 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 I think must, must be one of the earliest places in which this argument is made. And it's made uh, by, it may not surprise you to, to, to learn this, it was made by James Joyce in Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, this, this early novel of Joyce, where Joyce has a uh, uh, conversation in, in the, uh, where, where uh, Stephen Daedalus has a conversation in the college where he uh, teaches, and he and somebody else teaching at the school who's British born in a, a, a Gaelic word, an Irish word, tundish. And let me just read you the, this passage from Portrait of the Artist. This is the very beginning of the century, and it's not a, uh, a non-European people, but it still is a, a colonized people, a people experienced as colonized, namely the Irish by the English. Is that called a tundish in Ireland, asked the dean. Never heard the word in my life. They're, of course, speaking English. 
While he ruminates upon it, Stephen thinks. The language in which we are speaking is his before it is mine. How different are the words home, Christ, ale, master, on his lips and on mine. I cannot speak or write these words without unrest of spirit. His language, that is English, so familiar and so foreign will always be for me an acquired speech. My soul frets in the shadow of his language. So there is an Irish-born writer who, of course, wrote in English or whatever one wants to, well, I mean, leaving Finnegan's wake aside, maybe that was the, uh, Joyce's idea of transcending this whole problem by writing a, a kind of, met in a meta-language that was no longer English. But anyway, a writer who did not think at the beginning of his literary career that he had any choice, he wasn't going to write in Irish or Gaelic. He chose English as his language, and yet confessed, avowed something, and I think it's a very early example, of um, a feeling that so many writers in so many parts of the world, including Africa, have, have expressed that uh, there is a difference between a, a language imposed by colonizers, even if it's your first and only language, and the indigenous language, the tribal language of the place that, that you, that in which you were born and which has been oppressed by uh, the more powerful national grouping and the more powerful international language. So what about this issue? It, it occurs in India as well and many parts of the world of using English or French as the language of literature in African countries as opposed uh, to those who feel, uh, there are a number of writers, of course, who've done both at different parts of their, of their writing lives, as opposed to using, um, uh, I don't know what the right words would be, a tribal okay. language or a native language. Yes, well, thank you. The, um, that passage from, from um, the portrait of James Joyce is, of course, very moving. It's a classic statement of this, this condition. Um, and it's a very difficult and a very complex um, situation. There is, we could talk, in fact, for the rest of the evening and tomorrow about this, and, um, and we would still not come to the end of it. Um, there are both the, there is the practical side of the question there is the emotional uh, there, is, there are all kinds of dimensions to it now uh, in Africa it's even more urgent than it was uh, to an Irishman and there are today people in Africa, there are even writers today who have now announced that they will no longer write in the language of the oppressor. Now, that is one form of response. It takes a stand which is clear, unambiguous, even laudable and it certainly does receive attention and, uh, and applause 
but it only deals with one aspect of a very complex situation. Uh, we cannot undo the history of the last 300 years in Africa. The Organization of African Unity may not agree on many things, but they are unanimous on this issue that they are not going to, this is when I say, when I talk about the, the Organization of African Unity, I'm talking about the heads of states. I'm not talking about people like myself. The highest authority in Africa, this is the Organization of African Unity, has said we are not going to tamper with the boundaries which we inherited at independence. We have seen a situation, for instance, in Nigeria in which millions, we lost millions of our young people in a civil war because one section of the country said, we, we've had enough of this. We want to be left alone. And the other section said, no, this country is one. You are not allowed to leave it. And so we had a very bloody civil war. So this, this question of boundaries is not simply um, uh, an unimportant issue. You may say, how did we get these boundaries? Who gave you these boundaries? It becomes quite farcical. These boundaries were given to us by the Europeans. One fine day in Berlin, in 1884, uh, when Bismarck summoned his fellow Europeans and said, what we are doing in Africa, fighting among ourselves, is quite unseemly. You know, we don't do things like that. It's, it's, uh, it's, uh, so let's talk about this like civilized people. Let's let's share out the continent you know, uh, so that we don't um, fight among ourselves then in the, in the presence of the natives. So they had a, a huge map blank map of Africa, and they cut it off. So this is your sphere of influence, this is yours, this is yours, this is yours. And uh, there were no Africans at that conference. So that's how the, the, the boundaries came into being. But a hundred years later, less than a hundred years later, we were ready to lose millions of our, of our people in a fight to preserve these boundaries. And the Organization of African Unity has now said once and for all, we are not going to mess around with the boundaries. We've got other things to do. We'll keep the boundaries. No matter what anyone thinks about them, we'll keep them, we have them. So that is part of the reality of Africa. Um, and to ignore that reality is, is really to be stupid, quite frankly. If you take my country called Nigeria, if we were to say today, from next week, nobody shall speak English within Nigeria, we can say that. But 
in saying that, the whole concept, the whole structure of Nigeria will also go. We have to be prepared for that. We have to go back to those original nationalities that we had before. And we're not ready to do that. And uh, one can argue from here to there, whatever. Is this right or wrong? Now, once we take that decision, we are in the position of, of judge. Is it right that I should leave my mother tongue and write in somebody else's mother tongue? And the answer is, in our case, fortunately, we're a bit more fortunate than Joyce here. In my case, I still remember the two languages. I remember my mother tongue, and I have learned the English language. So for me, it has always been not a question of this or that, but both. And this is not a very dramatic position to take. It doesn't win applause from the platform. But that is the position in which I find myself. Uh, and this is not, this does not apply to every single African writer, every single Nigerian writer. There are some writers who cannot, even if they wanted to, write in their mother tongue because they don't know it. So the question of language is very complex. English in Nigeria is not, uh, it is a foreign language, it is an alien language, but it's been knocking around there for over a hundred years. And you don't leave something like as powerful as a language knocking around that long and not try to domesticate it in, in literature. In fact, it is, it is the business of it. We have the responsibility to domesticate the English language in Africa, in Nigeria, because it is there. It is there already. Otherwise, it's just the language of bureaucrats. Otherwise, it will destroy us. It's worse than the language of, of bureaucrats. Our people never allow anything which is powerful to hang around without a function. You assign a role to it, you call it into the general surveillance of the culture and assign a name and a place to it. Then you can begin to deal with it. And that's what we are doing. Let me move the discussion to something that we had talked about the, the last time we met uh, uh, last summer, which is uh, uh, colonialist attitudes in uh, European literature, European and American literature. Uh, to, to what extent, when you teach, for instance, at, at uh, city, the City University or... City College. City College, sorry. Well, yes, it's part of the City University. City College or, or, or uh, University of, of Massachusetts. Well, we, one of the things that came out of our partly private, partly public discussion last summer was that you, you, you said in public that you had the experience of um, showing... Uh, against a considerable amount of resistance, uh, younger readers, this was confirmed by the, the, the readers in our, in our literary conference where we met last summer, um, uh, th that the, um, the extent of racist and colonial attitudes in European literature was much uh, deeper and more insidious and also, one might say, more complex than uh, 
these readers, who inc included some very intelligent writers as well, uh, had suspected. And the, the case study for this, as you remember, last summer, uh, we got into quite an argument with, uh, with uh, some writers, was uh, Conrad's uh, novella, The Heart of Darkness. I wonder if you could mm. share with this audience uh, something of that debate, because I think it, uh, it was a very powerful moment. Yes, well, let me go back a bit. Um, I read Conrad um, as a young man, much younger than I am now, <coughs> in, in the university. And I had some reservations, but I couldn't quite put my finger. In the, in the university in Nigeria? Yes, in Nigeria. Taught by Nigerian no, professors? No, taught by, taught by British professors. Yes, um, that was the first university we had in, in Nigeria, the University of Ibadan. Um, and Conrad was, of course, very high uh, on the list, as it's still high on the list in this country in virtually all English departments. Uh, it is supposed to be one of the finest novels, but you can call one of the greatest short novels in the English language. Um, okay. Um, in 1975, after I had grown a little wiser, I began to look more closely at the heart of darkness. And I decided to give a lecture at the University of Massachusetts. I was invited to deliver what they call the Chancellor's Lecture. And so I called it the image of Africa, uh, racism in Conrad. And I exposed, actually it's not an exposure because it's all there, it's very, very plain. Uh, virtually on every page, this restatement over and over again of the old stereotypes of Africa as a non-place, of Africans as non-people, Nobody, there's no African in that novel that has a name. Um, and so I went into some detail analyzing this and, uh, and pointing out what I think was... ...the place that needed to have people put in there. And um, my lecture was, well, divided the, the place. I, I recall a very indignant and elderly emeritus professor walking up to me and saying, how dare you? It's as simple as that. How dare you? This is sacrilege. Not so long ago, I encountered um, a comment by a Scandinavian critic, which he says, if this is the way that, talking about this same essay, if this is the way that Africans are going to talk about Europeans, then we will not be safe when they get their freedom. This is about 
So, so you see, you are dealing with something very deep and very dangerous. Um, it's it's almost like responding to a text with threats rather than with another text. Um, and so, whenever I have the opportunity, as uh, as in Dublin, I raise it, and to my never-ending surprise. There's always somebody who gets up and says, I don't believe there's racism in, Con in Conrad. I don't see it. And I said, I, that's right. You don't see it. That's exactly the point. That's why I'm giving this lecture. This is why I'm saying it. You're a very intelligent man. Uh, you've read all the books in the world, and yet you don't see this very obvious thing in front of you. If you, if, if you saw it, I wouldn't need to be saying it. Uh, and so we do need uh, Conrad's Heart of Darkness is one good example. It really is, is a classic. And somebody got up and said, does it mean you will ban it? I said, for God's sake, no. In fact, I will teach it. On the contrary, I will teach it as a very, very good example of how not to represent other people. You have nobody, no writer has a right to dehumanize a section of the of, of, of the world. This is really what it boils down to. You take their humanity away from them and they become something less. Uh, and this is a matter on which I, I feel very strongly. But but I, I wouldn't ban it. I would, I, would, I would teach it. Well, I remember very well a, a, a quite violent uh, discussion in this writers' meeting in Dublin uh, where Mr. Chabin and I met last summer, uh, which some very remarkable and wonderful writers there, and uh, everyone, well, um, ex except me, jumped to Conrad's defense. And I'm, I'm a great admirer of Conrad, and he is a writer who's uh, meant a great deal to me. But it made, uh, I didn't have any problem in agreeing. I, yeah, I must say, I, I appreciate the fact <laughs> that you're walking I, up to me and saying I agree with you, because I needed it. I was uh, a, <laughs> no, but I mean, what was interesting, yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to yeah. claim the credit for myself, because I think, in a way, I'd always known it or always noticed it. I, I, only, I only mentioned myself because I was the only one, and that really astonished me. And there were very different sorts of writers uh, representing very different kinds of moral and cultural constituencies. One of them was Derek Walcott, for instance, whom one might imagine to be someone uh, who w was be prepared, he certainly meditated a lot about racism and colonialism, but he was one of the people who said, no, I don't think of Conrad as, as racist. And of course, this raises a, a larger uh, issue about, what, about how we think about literature at all. I mean, I, I, as much as I do agree with you about Conrad's novel, I think, Con you see, Conrad got a lot of credit in writing, being a European and writing about non-European subjects. That itself was so rare at the time. Uh, and so one of, the, one of the arguments about Heart of Darkness was, well, of course these attitudes are there, but Conrad doesn't share them. He's simply exposing them. But in fact, there is no indication in the text that he has a critical distance from, the, from these uh, uh, attitudes. But I don't know that I would agree with you that no writer has the right to dehumanize. Um, 
I think that there's a lot of writing which is uh, impudent, uh, satiric, uh, even wicked. And that we are uh, not only, of course, I mean, obviously we agree uh, that, that these books are not to be banned. They are, as you put it eloquently, to be taught. Uh, perhaps uh, that would be the answer to the, the, the question of the Salman Rushdie novel. It should be taught everywhere in the Muslim world uh, and exposed by, uh, by being examined in Muslim universities. At any rate, it, we're not it, raising the issue of whether something should be banned because we agree that that's, that's not an issue. Nevertheless, there, it is worth perhaps talking about, continuing for a few moments and opening it up to everyone else, uh, whether we, whether, how important and what status the moral judgment about the moral implications of a literary work is. I mean, it's one thing to notice what Conrad is doing, and I entirely agree with your reading uh, of, of Heart of Darkness, that it is saturated with racist attitudes, racist, uh, unexamined racist assumptions. Uh, but how important, what do you do with that, um, apart from use it as an exemplary text in the way that you might take uh, the writings of uh, certain contemporary American writers and uh, examine them for their sexist attitudes or misogynistic attitudes. Uh, I, I mean, literature can be an instrument for examining attitudes and for teaching people how to be critical uh, of their assumptions about class, about race, about gender, etc. But surely there is a literary issue that goes beyond, uh, as everyone knows, we, we, you, you, I use the textbook example of Joyce. Let me use another textbook example, which is Celine, uh, who was a, a, a collection of extremely unattractive attitudes on almost everything that one can think of, uh, race, class, sex, religion, um, national identity, etc. Uh, and yet, there is a very powerful argument to be made that Celine is a great writer, that he's a liberating writer, that, he's, that he is part of French literature and not to be cast out. There's also an argument that he isn't, and he should be cast out, that his attitudes are simply too unacceptable. But I don't think that we can take for granted, it still remains to be argued, that when we have used a text to explore the attitudes of the writer or the people that the writer represents, we have not, I think, uh, uh, answered what the, the question of literature is. Uh, it is. Literature is much more than a collection of attitudes, whether good ones or bad ones, whether wholesome ones or, or uh, negative ones. Can we say something yeah. about that before perhaps yes. we open it yes. up? Uh, well, I, I'd like to <clears throat> pick up what you said um, about the satirical, the critical. Um, now, I accept that completely. I mean, literature has a function uh, to be satirical, to, to criticize. To be, to, irreverent. Yeah, to be irreverent, to be irreverent, to all be all blasphemous. Yes, yes, I think literature can and should be all those things. But literature, I don't think, has a right to dehumanize, to make a human being a non-person. I think that is something else. Um, it, uh, in fact, in our tradition, I mean, I can, I can spend a, lo a, a lot of time. In our tradition, traditional uh, 
idea or ideas about art. One of the one of the basic things, if you take the Igbo, the Igbo idea, for instance, the the goddess of the earth, uh, Ane or Allah, in Igbo, is the most powerful deity in the in the Igbo pantheon. She is responsible for the arts. She's also responsible for morality. And in other words, in the view of these people, art and morality belong to the same portfolio. Um, this culture understands and in fact enjoys irreverence. We have institutions for making fun of people who think too much about themselves. We have institutions like the masquerade. Because if somebody is so powerful that I dare not go before him and say this, then we, we get a masquerade who represents the ancestors. And the masquerade cannot be afraid. And he will go to that person and say that thing. This is all in our traditional practice. So it is not really a question of um, satire or, or any of these things. It is a question of saying this human being is not really a fully accredited human being. That is something else. And I don't think art has any business with, with that. Because art was created to make our passage in the world as people easier. I think it is uh, art is supposed to give us a second handle on reality so that when real life becomes too rough we can use this and it is not intended to oppress us um, so while I, uh, I, I agree also that Conrad is a very good writer I think he's overrated but I think he's a very good writer and I, and I think he, he wrote some really first rate books or parts of books even in the Heart of Darkness, there are some very moving sections, passages. But when somebody dehumanizes another, for me, that's no go. Um, somebody else, now, coming to the question of um, the teaching, the importance of what I'm saying is, in fact, it's a missionary task, you know, to, in, to increase the awareness of, of the critics, of the readers, so that if somebody stands in front of young people and is teaching Conrad's Heart of Darkness, who would remember that there is this problem, which perhaps white people have not noticed, but which at least black people have noticed at least to be aware of it. And I think this is terribly important. As part of the value of literature, it must include this. And when people say, um, and this is what Derek Walcott was trying to say, that we must not condemn a writer for the opinions expressed by characters in their books. Of course, everybody knows that. That's not what we're talking about. We are talking about a writer who has not established what we call the, the, the distance between the 
the moral universe of his story and himself. Um, I don't know what I've yeah. No, I, I think this, this is uh, indeed the beginning of a much longer discussion and maybe we should break off here. I, there is um, another view which I, I would think many people in here would want to defend. I, I think at least Monday, Wednesday, and Friday I would want to defend it. Maybe Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday I'd have your view. Which is that art and morality are not, in the, as you put it, the same portfolio. I mean, they, they, they have very complex relations with each other, but they are at times even in collision. And it's not just a question of, of satire. I, I, if, if I was suggesting that um, uh, th that my alternative to the uh, uh, the humanizing attitude was was uh, satiric, and then you wanted to include that as part of a non-dehumanizing world, of course I agree. No, I think that um, uh, art is sometimes dangerous uh, and blasphemous, and. Not, not simply to express irreverent views, but to express views and sentiments and emotions and, and a relation to language which is basically untenable or only partly tenable, uh, like, like a kind of um, impossible states. It's not only to make life possible, it's also to remind us of what is impossible. Um, it's that edge um, and th that that kind of adventure for art, of course, which has been very much emphasized in the uh, high European art uh, in the last hundred years, emphasized to such a point that a number of art forms have, have, have seem to have bankrupted themselves by uh, making their demands on their form and on uh, um, th the idea of novelty or outrage so intense and unremitting that, that uh, they have destroyed some of the main traditions of their art. Uh, we're now in a more conservative period where people are, are, are looking to older and, and less uh, conscientiously subversive models, and that may be even a necessary corrective. But we do have that tradition uh, of thinking about art as not part of the same portfolio as morality. Uh, not, uh, not, again, only that, but it, that it could be that. Uh, it's an idea which is, has less credibility now than it had 10 or 20 years ago. Because one, uh, it's one thing to attack taboos when you feel the taboos are still there to be attacked. It's another thing to feel uh, that there is only a sort of consensus about, about, um, about outrage finding new forms of outrage. So again, it's complicated. It is but I think, I think that most people here thinking of the art which they cherish, whether it's, I don't know why my examples are French, but whether it's Rimbaud or Céline or whatever, people that we wouldn't want to read out of the canon. Uh, it, if, if you think of, of some of the great European modernists, and also some of, of the great American writers, I mean, li people like... Uh, like Dickinson and Melville and so on were in some very dark places uh, in their work and in their imagination, then uh, it is hard to, to say of art and include everything that one admires of the, of the work of the last hundred years that it makes life 
of possible. It seems to make life harder in some ways. Uh, if you have a certain kind of very intense and inward relationship to literature. But this is yes. a long subject, and I know yes. you don't well, disagree, because no, we are talking about um, more general things, and we're talking about more specialized kinds of, of uh, relationships to literature and the other arts. And certainly our our arts are in a crisis. We call this crisis modernism, or the crisis of modernism, or the abandonment of modernism, and now postmodernism is supposed to be over. I don't know what uh, new silly word will be invented for that, but... Uh, 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 our arts, our so-called serious arts, you see, have been in a state of self-proclaimed crisis for about 100 years. Part of this came out of an effort to be critical, to take the critical function, in particular the, criti in particular, the criticism of bourgeois values, all the way. Uh, you can start with Flaubert, or you can start with with uh, any, uh, writers in the middle of the 19th century said, okay, we are going to seriously examine conformist bourgeois values. It isn't simply a question of promoting certain ideas. We've actually got to change the forms in which work is made. And so that happened uh, in one art after another with Cezanne, with Schoenberg, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's an old uh, story now. Uh, and we're now at the end of the 20th century living out some of the consequences of this idea that art should be unremittingly critical and that the uh, that artists, whether writers, other kinds of, of creative people, should be standing in a different relationship, uh, a, a, a less than constructive relationship to the community. I realize that these uh, uh, issues are often discussed when people talk about what kind of literature could emerge in the non-European countries and that by and large Modernism has not had a very good reputation uh, in Africa, which is not to say that, that some, uh, some African writers aren't influenced by the uh, heroic classics of modernism. But uh, that, that is all part of a long story for us in which um, we are not so comfortable in saying, as you put it, art and morality are in the same portfolio, even though, of course, we're not any more comfortable with the idea of saying that they're going in opposite directions. That would be an obviously even more untenable position. If I have to have an extreme, I want your extreme, uh, rather than one that totally separates art, art and morality. But I don't feel comfortable with the one that says they do naturally or ideally reinforce each other. It just, to put it simply, put, leaves out uh, too, too much of what I admire. Uh, morally as well as aesthetically in, in the high art of the last hundred years. Well, let me just um, say this. Um, morality in the sense in which uh, the people I was referring to understand it is not Sunday school morality at all. It's morality in a deeper sense. Um, the image, the image of, the, of, the, of this goddess of, of, of art and morality um, shows her seated in the middle at the center of, of the front row in this gallery of, of deities. On her left knee, she's holding a child. And in her right hand, she's holding a sword. It's not morality in the sense, in the very narrow sense. It is morality in a very, very deep sense which says that our business is in fact 
um, uh, to enhance life, not to destroy it. Uh, it is that kind of morality. Uh, the, the, the extremes are, are admired, are encouraged. In fact, one of the, one of the uh, constant uh, images in one of our writers uh, is you have climbed the tree beyond its leaves. We in fact expect art to climb the tree beyond its leaves. Uh, the, the morality is not, it's not a cozy kind of thing. It's not, it's not, we're not talking about making life dull and uninteresting. No, the, the extravagance is there. Uh, but at the end of the day, there are moral values in the universe. There is no art which says, go and kill your neighbor. Any art which says it is right to, to, to jump on your neighbor and cut off his neck is bad art. This is really what this divinity is saying. It is something as extreme as that. Um, so I, I just wanted to, you know, to, to because yeah. I think we are, in fact, in agreement. Yes. Um, um, the complexity of the situation is such that the opposite, in fact, there is a complementarity of opposites. Everything I say here tonight, I will probably contradict in another group, depending on how they are responding. Yes. <laughs> and, 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 if I, if I come into a room full of conservatives, I become a, a revolutionary. I think this is one of, the, one of the beauties of art. That in fact, you see that you cannot be one thing alone. Now, one I, thing now, is I, not know, now I know we agree completely. <laughs> I'm going to end by quoting Oscar Wilde. Why not? Uh, a truth in, in art is that whose opposite is also true. That's right. Let's have some dialogue. If... Uh, if you like, it's, I know it's very warm here, and uh, Mr. Chebe is being very patient. But oh no, uh, I'm enjoying it. No. We can go on a little bit longer. Uh, yes, sir.
not saying that. I'm sorry. I, I must interrupt you. I no, but you are. I've asked you to. I, I've asked for questions. I cited a particular literature. I know more about Europe than I do about Africa, yes. Could you come to a question, please? No, I said I wanted to open the, the, the evening to questions, and well, it's a dialogue. I'm not sure that, uh, Wilfred, I'm not quite sure that I understand what, what you're asking me. Um, well, whether there is an African ethos and whether this ethos is visible in our literature? I agree with you. I agree with you. Yes. You have to speak louder. Let, let me let me repeat the question. Uh, the, I'd have to do that for the tape to have a record. Uh, there is some art which calls itself revolutionary. Uh, you mentioned Leroy Jones, and some, and you said there are some Latin American writers who would describe in this way, uh, where where art is a, a vehicle for a certain kind of righteous view. Is that am I correct in saying that? Uh, you are asking Mr. Achebe then if he would call this uh, uh, art which 
conceives of itself as an instrument for revolutionary change, would he call that art, given what he has uh, said before? I think, I think that would be accurate summary of what you said. Well, um, I would call it art if it satisfies other conditions. Um, simply um, saying this is right or righteous or true could be a, a sermon, but it doesn't necessarily become art. Um, so in so far as I am I, for including, well, this, this is probably what uh, I hope, if I if you get nothing at all from me this evening, it's that I am for including rather than excluding. So if you say, is it possible to write revolutionary poetry of the kind you've said? I said, of course. It is possible. It's been done. It's been done in Africa. All you need is a good poet who is ready to challenge poetry and himself to the task. But this also produces a lot of, of, of things that call themselves poetry that are not poetry. So if we have I, I hope uh, I hope this this clarifies. In other words, revolution by itself, or revolutionary fervor, or whatever you, you call it, would not necessarily defeat the aim of poetry. But it does not necessarily create poetry. Yes. Wait, just a sec. We're going to go on. Yeah. question uh, relates to Mr. Achebe's uh, uh, statements about dehumanization being something which is precluded by what uh, can claim to be regarded as literature or art. And the questioner asks, uh, well, perhaps Mr. Achebe would want to make a distinction between uh, dehumanization and objectification because she finds, particularly in the treatment of women and cites uh, uh, one of his novels uh, is, is it a, a, a Man of the People uh, as uh, expressing attitudes toward uh, women which if I can uh, sort of expand what you said would perhaps only be charitably called uh, objectification and might even be called <laughs> dehumanization that's clearly the intent of the question so uh, is there a sense in which dehumanization uh, perhaps then giving it a more positive aspect would uh, uh, have a role in literature, only then we call it objectification, and uh, I, I, clearly the intent of the question is to uh, uh, ask Mr. Achebe about his attitudes toward women in yeah, his well, fiction. All right, all right. There, oh, the intention is not to ask him his attitudes about women. There are inconsistencies all over the place, but um, 
inconsistencies don't bother me. They don't trouble me at all. Um, if you are saying, if you are saying that there is dehumanization of the women in my novels, I would say no. I would, I would, I would, I would reject that accusation. Uh, I'm not quite sure I understand the, these uh, terms objectification. Um, it would be quite inconceivable for me as a person and as a writer to attempt to dehumanize women in my stories. Now, it is possible that my account of women is not adequate. It is quite possible. In which case, the remedy, the remedy for inadequacy is more of, the, of somebody else coming up. I've said this to women, for instance, in, in my country. There are now a whole lot of them charging up and down, saying, you know, um, women are oppressed in our literature. Well, it is possible that men can only write so far, so much. And I'm really humble enough to admit that perhaps there are things about women that I cannot possibly know. And if I see someone who does it better, I will be the first to admit it. But you cannot find any intention on my part to dehumanize women. All right, let, wait, we can't have, let it go too private no. because people can't hear. Uh, let me jump in. <laughs> Your argument about that you don't intend uh, to dehumanize women uh, or that you think that perhaps men have a limit in what they can know about women and therefore it's women who perhaps should have the, 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 the writer's women writers who will tell us the whole story about women. No, 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 no. They can it, tell us part of the story. You said possibly. Yes, yes. Everything is hedged by possibility. Well, that's is all that, I'm saying. Yes, wait, yes, just let, yes, wait a minute. Yes. You said that what some people might say, and I, I don't know this novel, so I'm not going to base it on this novel. I'm just going to base it on my, my reading of books. It's as common for men to say they don't dehumanize women in their books as it is for Europeans and white people to say they don't dehumanize uh, people f of color from other countries. I mean, it is simply not perceived. Uh, but women readers find all the time that they are presented in a, in, in a different way, and not simply in a less knowing way. It's not a question of knowing more or less. It's a question of one's status, that women are generally not subjects, they are not active. Uh, they are objects, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you can go through most of literature and see that most writers who are mostly male treat men, not, not because they don't know women, but because they think of the range of women's activities in a much more limited way than they do the range of men's activities. And women are as sensitive to this as, let's say, uh, on the part of men writers and some women writers as... Um, let's say African or Asian writers are to what Europe is to stereotypes that Europeans have about um, uh, the, 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 uh, the, in, in the stereotypes about Africans and Asians by the part of European writers. So to say that one doesn't isn't really enough. The question is what is there? We're not obviously, 
we have to have texts and we have a much smaller group to examine anything to find this out. But it isn't enough, as we all know, to say, well, I didn't mean it or I didn't intend it or I don't live this way in my own life because those cultural attitudes are there. Yes, well, okay, if they're there, then the, the remedy is for, is for more women to write, which is really what I was saying. If, if there are areas beyond my comprehension, you see, I would not, you see, it's, there, is a, there is a difference which I don't, maybe um, I'm not making it quite clear. I'm ready, I'm prepared to say it is possible that I do not know enough to be yep. able to do this. Therefore, if somebody else does it better, man or woman, I would applaud it. Um, but I have to disagree with you there because you would not make the same argument about racist attitudes. You would not say that if European literature is full of racist and colonialist attitudes, then the remedy is to have more black people and more people in colonized countries writing. No, you would say the remedy is to teach the Europeans to abandon their racist and colonialist attitudes, not to simply let them go on having their no, attitudes, no, no. but have no. other people present other no, attitudes. No, 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 no. Um, I think, in fact, uh, you, 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 you are doing both things at the same time. Uh, what, what you're saying, in fact, is, is precisely what I'm doing. You see, the moment I realized from reading Conrad that I was not on Marlowe's boat, steamer going up the Congo that I was on the shore jumping up and down and screaming. <laughs> the moment I realized that I knew I had to, to write my own story. This is really what I'm saying. There's nothing wrong with that. So instead of one book, you have two. And then the possibility of coming to the reality, to the truth of the matter, the, the possibility is enhanced. I mean, how else? I mean, am I going to say, I do not understand about women uh, so I'm going to um, uh, commit suicide. No, I would say those who understand better should come up with their own stories. So instead of one story by Achebe, which um, somehow objectifies women, there will now be two or three stories, some of them by, by women, which will complete the story. So I, and while we are doing that, while the women are writing those stories, or whoever is writing those stories, I myself will be learning. So the learning process and the doing the thing by somebody else should go hand in hand. It isn't a question of one or the other. Did I say that? No, no, no. I didn't say that. No, no I don't think we should uh, trivialize this. No, no. I mean, there is a limit to how much I can do in this. This is what I'm told. And I'm saying, okay, I'm ready to learn. So let us 
hear more from those who can. I should have said, in fact, I should have said myself that you are this. He is the great writer on women in Africa. But I wasn't. I wasn't. Yes, and some people sometimes <laughs> imagine that he must be a woman. Um, so it is possible for a man to have that capacity. And, uh, and of course, of course, I learn. I enjoy his novels. Uh, I, I, I learn a lot from it, but um, it isn't it isn't the same thing as saying uh, why do you criticize racism in in European fiction? I don't think it's quite the same thing. Yes, I don't think it's the same thing. Yes. I've the question never, is, uh, what, what la language does Mr. Chevy dream in? Igbo or, or English or both, and if both, in what proportions? Well, if this went to a mixed audience, I would have given you a, 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 a more obscene version of that question, uh, which, which I've answered somewhere else. But anyway, I don't know. The answer is I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I think there's a lot of mystique about this, and a lot of bogus mystique, really. Um, if you are bilingual, you can dream in either language. You can think in either language. I don't think there is any kind of uh, law. Yes. Could you cover the question? Oh, the question is okay. Yeah, the question was when uh, Miss Sound made an introduction, she was very wonderful in saying this is one of our greatest writers. She didn't narrow you down to whether you were African or black or Nigerian. And when you talked about uh, the question, you also said, well, I consider myself African and Nigerian. I wouldn't separate them. I love music a lot, and I'm very into African music. And very specifically narrowed down when I when I play something this is 
All right, let me try to make this into a question. Yeah, no, the question is back to the, the thing about identity. Uh, um, I think that one doesn't. You know, writing is about sentences and commas and periods and so on. It isn't about, it isn't about uh, hanging a label over your head and uh, saying, well, now I'm a this and therefore I'm writing that. But, the, but I'll, I'll, I mean, that's anyway my yeah, view. It's a different, it's, it's perhaps, uh, I'm, not, I'm not, you know, I don't come from a bilingual situation, so I don't, I, I don't even have that, that, that choice that you have. And I, the question is, uh, do you have a fundamental way of characterizing yourself um, uh, as a writer in terms of this uh, continental or national or local or tribal identity? I, I think that most writers... Uh, but we, uh, we all know more than one literary tradition, and literature is in part born out of literature, out of models that are provided for us not only by what is most indigenous, uh, by the mother tongue, the mother experiences, but by things that come in school and university and, and through travels that are terribly important. So uh, those stick in your head, and it's, it would be hard to scale. Just as you said, you couldn't, you couldn't abolish English in, in Nigeria without bringing the country to a halt. You can't abolish the internationalism of literature, that is to say of our literary experience and our literary influences, without bringing literature to a halt. Mm -hmm. If you only had uh, the literature of your tribe, so to speak, we all could be defined as tribes. Did I lose the literature of my tribe? I was born in this country, yes. Yeah. Well, I don't think that it, I, uh, I can be said to have lost my native language since I was born here. My native language is English. Um, like, 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 uh, well, I don't know. I think, it, it, well, the way America works, if you're born here, uh, and No, no. I simply can't say that I've lost my native language. No. I'm only saying something so elementary and obvious that, that you want to say something else, which is that my native language is English, and I did not lose any language in writing in English. That's all I want to say. Mr. Chavia, did you want to respond to the question of identity? I know it wasn't. I'm not responding to your question. I'm responding to his comment. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I've lost the question. Is it, the question is, is, do you have an identity when you write? No, no, I don't. That's the answer. I mean, I mean, obviously, I have an identity, but I'm not thinking about it. Okay, that's the answer. You are not writing with your pen in your hand, thinking, who am I? Okay, we're going to take two more questions. Yes.
right. The question is, uh, does Mr. Achebe, in, in view of the fact that uh, there are large populations in Africa who, who, who are illiterate, who do not read books, uh, does he feel that writers have, uh, like himself or himself in particular, have any responsibility to uh, doing something about this situation? Well, I think we all have a responsibility to um, improve the level of literacy in our various societies. Um, Africa is not the only place where there is illiteracy. Uh, there is a lot of illiteracy here if we are talking about reading the kind of, of books I write. Um, so these percentages really um, can be exaggerated, the, the, the value of these uh, percentages. I um, Literacy is low in parts of Africa. It's, it's improving. Uh, that does not make me pessimistic about the 21st century uh, in any sense. so I can repeat it because nobody can hear it up here. Yeah, I heard it. I heard it. Just go on. Yeah. No, you have to, are you coming to a question? Which, which characters? Okay, the question is, question is, uh, is Mr. Achebe capable of identifying with uh, literature or uh, 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 relating to pe relating, I think is the word, to literature from Europe and, the, and these great famous characters? Well, did he? Did he? Oh, yes. Yes, I did. I did. 
Okay, well, let's not end on that dismal question. Yes. <laughs> No, no, we were talking about Conrad's racism. It's a misunderstanding. We were talking about racism in his work. Yeah, well, I mean, the title, giving the title, the Yeah, well, but we were talking about another book, which is more interesting, because no, We didn't say he wasn't a racist. I'm sorry. We said the opposite. Yes, that's what we've been talking about for about an hour. No, it's a misunderstanding. Uh, yes, the back. You're going to have to come forward. I'm sorry. It's impossible. This is going to be the last question. If you can come forward, please. All right. Last. All right. We've, it's a, this question has been asked, but I, we, I think we have to break off, so I will formulate it once again. Mr. Achebe is being asked. He has already been asked this question or a version of it. What does it mean to be an African writer when so much of the population of Africa cannot read English and cannot read books written on English on that level. And we're in a, in a part of the world where the literary tradition, the questioner asserts, is still oral rather than written. Well, that's uh, really a whole uh, bunch of, of Pictures that don't don't uh, don't relate. Um, what does it mean to write when most people don't read? Uh, that's a question that's we could a, ask in this that's country. That's a question also. you can ask anywhere at all in the world. Um, you write because you write. Um, some people read. Some people read me. I, I go anywhere in the world, in, in, uh, in Africa, today, anywhere in, in, in Africa, and it's like a celebration. Um, I, 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 I must have seen millions of, of school children in Kenya in, uh, in, in December of last year, you know, on a daily basis. So um, from where I stand, it doesn't look to me like what we're doing is useless. Now, I would like to see many more people reading. No, he's not. He's not saying that. But he is saying that he has an audience. And I think it, it'll, it, it's very difficult for anyone in this country, any writer or reader in this country, to be talking about illiteracy uh, when we have one of the, uh, proportionally one of the smallest reading populations in the, on the planet. Thank you very much. A reception follows that way.
Tuesdays. Yes. Well, you can. The room is full. Unfortunately, the room, the room is full. Yes. But tell the English department and see what it is. Yes. Hello. Yes. Ah. 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 Ah.